Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. If you are a listener who loved our episode on the Gospel of Mary Magdalene or on Mary, Mother of God, then you will love the texts that we are discussing today. Woman Spirit Rising, a feminist reader in religion, and Weaving the Visions, New Patterns in Feminist Spirituality, both edited by Carol P. Christ and Judith Plasco. These books contain essays that were written in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, and they reflect a movement within feminism that was grappling with the patriarchal aspects of religion, and rather than rejecting religion altogether, as so many feminists were doing at the time, these authors were working to retain the spiritual, the mystical, and the ritual parts of religion while still confronting and challenging patriarchy. As an introduction, I'm going to read just a couple of sentences from the 1992 version of Woman Spirit Rising, which is the edition that we read for the show today. It says that some feminists, quote, are convinced that religion is profoundly important. For them, the discovery that religions teach the inferiority of women is experienced as a betrayal of deeply felt spiritual and ritual experience. They believe the history of sexism in religions shows how deeply sexism has permeated the human psyche, but does not invalidate human need for ritual, symbol, and myth. While differing on many issues, the contributors to this volume agree that religion is deeply meaningful in human life and that the traditional religions of the West have betrayed women. They are convinced that religion must be reformed or reconstructed to support the full human dignity of women, end quote. So that's the thesis of today's works, and no one better to discuss this issue with than the magnificent Maxine Hanks. Welcome back, Maxine. <laughs> well, thank you. It's uh, it's an honor to be with the uh, magnificent Amy Olivest. <laughs> So let's, before we dive into the um, passages that we want to share, I'll just briefly introduce the editors, um, as I usually do. So Carol Patrice Christ was born to a Protestant Christian family in California in 1945. She obtained her PhD from Yale and has served as a professor at universities such as Columbia University and Harvard Divinity School. Her best-known publication is Why Women Need the Goddess, which was initially a keynote presentation at the Great Goddess Reemerging Conference at UC Santa Cruz in 1978. This essay helped to launch the goddess movement in the United States and other countries, and it discusses the importance of religious symbols in general and the effects of male symbolism of God on women in particular. Christ calls herself a theologian with an A. So instead of a theologian, it's a theologian. And that's derived from the ancient Greek theia, which is goddess, um, instead of the masculine term that we're used to. So it's hard for listeners to hear the difference, but it's really cool reading it because every time there's that A in there instead of the O, you're like, oh, right, this is, <laughs> this is feminist theology. Carol Chris' work has helped to create a space for the field of theology to be far more inclusive of women than has historically been the case. She is the director of the Ariadne Institute for the Study of Myth and Ritual, where she conducts pilgrimages to sacred sites in Greece. And Chris lives on the Greek island of Lesbos, which was the home of the poet Sappho. 
Judith Plaskow was born to a Jewish family in New York in 1947. Throughout junior high and high school, Plaskow dreamed of becoming a rabbi, even though women rabbis were unheard of and opposed by many, including her own rabbi. However, even she had reservations. She wanted to be a trailblazer, but wasn't absolutely certain that she believed in God. She says that her life changed one day during closing services on Yom Kippur when she realized that she could get a doctorate in theology instead. Had she become a rabbi, she would have been only the second ever female rabbi. But she says that she was born a theologian, and so she's sure she made the right choice. Plaskow earned her doctorate at Yale University, where she met Carol Christ, and they became fast friends. She taught at Manhattan College afterwards for 32 years before becoming a professor emeritus, and she was one of the creators of the Journal for Feminist Studies in Religion and served as editor for its first 10 years. She also helped to create Banat Esh, a Jewish feminist group and a feminist section of the American Academy of Religion. So Drs. Carol Christ and Judith Plaskow published Woman's Spirit Rising, a feminist reader in religion in 1979, as Maxine talked about. And it's, um, again, as we explained, it's an, it's an anthology. So it has many different women's essays on feminist theology on different topics. And the edition that I read for this episode was published in 1992. And in the preface to that edition, the editors explained that like so many other feminist projects from the 1970s. And and for me as a reader, I was thinking especially back to Our Bodies Ourselves. It was written by all white women. And in some of their essays, they claimed universality for quote unquote women's experiences, but were completely left out the perspectives of women of color. So realizing that, in 1989, Kristen Plaskow expanded their project and they published a new anthology of feminist theological writings featuring more diverse voices. And so that's what Weaving the Visions is. It's Weaving the Visions, New Patterns in Feminist Spirituality. And that includes um, still Christian and Jewish perspectives and still there are some white women in there, but there's also Native American women and black women and Asian women. And so they just um, include more voices. So we'll be sharing passages from both books today. Well, let's dive in, Maxine. What were some of the, the, um, the constructs or themes or how would you like to introduce the portion that you wanted to share? You know, I wanted to talk first about the structure of the book, how they approach the topic they first they cited what they saw the are the four problems that feminist theologians were facing in, in the religions, all the religions. The first one was the exclusively male religious language and constructs about God. Second, the limited or false dualistic thinking pervading religion that privileges God and man and spirit and the intellectual over the human, the female, the body, the emotional. Um, so that duality. They also talked about the the need for women's own experience and history apart from men's, since it you know religion was so male centric. And then number four, the need to create new ritual and theology. So these were the four problems they they identified that feminist theologians were facing. And then they they came up with when they looked at all the feminist work to date and what they were compiling for the book they came up with four approaches, which are not as crystal clear as I'm, I'm articulating them. I kind of 
pulled this out of their book, what I got out of it. But here are the four approaches that I see them identifying and taking. Number one is feminist criticism and inquiry of the existing systems and texts and structures to, to first see and locate the problem and evaluate what's there and what isn't, you know, are women there or not, you know, and decide, does this theology omit or include women? Is this male or female? You know, what is it? So that's the first approach that, that some feminist theologians were taking was just sort of inquiry and criticism. The second approach that they talk a lot about is feminist reform or reformers who go in and edit, revise, recover, transform the existing traditional religion or theology and find or reclaim uh, a female or feminine from within the existing male texts, the inherited tradition that women are working in. And this, of course, mainly applied to the Jewish and the Christian traditions. Um, I noticed that they left Islam out for the most part, not totally, but it's, it, you know, Muslim feminists don't show up much in, in this book Mm-mm. at Mm-mm. all. Um, and number three is revolution. So revolutionary feminist theology that resists, shatters, you know, undoes the sexism and re- rejects the inherited tradition and texts and uh, standards. And instead is looking for, um, other or new or women's ritual or traditions or texts. It's, it's trying to, to sort of shatter through and discover a whole new side or dimension rather than just, you know, trying to work within what's there. And then fourth, the creative uh, feminist theology that, that really goes beyond, you know, either the inherited or the shattered. It's just completely outside of, of what the religion has been, or even outside of the religion itself, it's looking for a whole new vision beyond what has been known or done uh, inside or outside of the traditions, inventing a new God, new theologies, new rituals, new mysticism. So these are the four approaches that they see the authors in this book taking. Okay, so I'm just going to dive in and describe each of the four sections, and then I'm going to share a quote or two from articles in each section of the book that really illustrate the theme and the the approach or the methodology that that section is trying to um, share. So Kristen Plaskow explained in, in the book that one thing all the authors have in common is all of them are addressing the problem that Western religion is profoundly sexist. Its ideas and doctrines, images and symbols are products of male perceptions of reality and have legitimized and reinforced the subordination of women. So then they go on to say that all of the authors are addressing that, but they're addressing it in very different ways. So the first section is titled, The Essential Challenge. Does theology speak to women's experience? And the word essential there has a double meaning. They're referring to essentialist feminism or woman-centered feminism that focuses on the female experience in a body as essentially different from male experience, as a separate, different reality. And so this section is really addressing the approach of revolutionary feminism and also the female-centric, the woman-centered approach of a different woman-centered theology rather than using a male theology. Um, And this section is kind of asking 
you know, do women need a different female God and theology and priesthood and even a different female religion? Anyway, here's a quote from one of the articles in this section by Valerie Saving. She says, I am a student of theology. I'm also a woman. I put these two assertions beside each other to imply that one's sexual identity has some bearing on their theological views. Theology has been written almost exclusively by men. So I criticize contemporary theologians from the viewpoint of feminine experience. So she's really advocating um, a female-centric, a different um, essential female feminist theology. One passage that I pulled out from Weaving the Visions is by Judith Plaskow in her essay on Jewish memory. And she says that the Torah itself is an account of what she calls God wrestling, um, where people have experiences with the divine that are mysterious and um, really challenging and hard to capture in words. And she says that the Torah, as it is written, only includes men's God wrestling, men's experiences. And of course, those experiences are perceived and described within a very patriarchal construct. So then she describes that ancient Jewish sources like the Kabbalah describe a primordial Torah, like the Torah before the Torah, which was written in fire before the world began. And so she describes that there's this process of making the earthly Torah better reflect the pre-existent Torah. And she says, quote, half the souls of Israel have not left for us the Torah they have seen. Insofar as we can begin to recover the God wrestling of women, insofar as we can restore a part of their vision and experience, we have more of the primordial Torah, the divine fullness of which the present Torah of Israel is only a fragment and a sign, end quote. Um, wow. Yeah, I thought that was powerful. I loved the um, that concept of that that there was a fullness that has been lost in the world, and a lot of different you know feminist theologians present it that way that they're kind of calling their religion to repentance, and that they're also calling them back to what was, you know, the fuller and more complete version that that was messed up by men along the way. But I thought that was really beautiful, especially when she says half the souls of Israel have not left for us the Torah they have seen. It just was, um, I thought, a beautiful way of describing that. Mm, it's really powerful. So that takes us to section number two, which is titled The Past. Does it hold a future for women? I thought I would read two quotes from this section, one by Phyllis Tripple's article on the, her feminist reading of Genesis, and then Elaine Pagel's um, on what became of God the Mother. Phyllis Tribble says, On the whole, the women's liberation movement is hostile to the Bible, and it claims the Bible is hostile to women. So many feminists read the Bible to reject my suggestion is that we reread to understand and reappropriate. Ambiguity characterizes the meaning of Adam in Genesis 2 and 3. Adam is a generic term for humankind. 
So deity is speaking to both the man and the woman. So there she's showing how she's doing a feminist reading, rereading and reinterpretation of Genesis, um, which I've done actually quite a lot in my work. And then um, Elaine Pagels, um, who I met and, and knew and interacted with both in Salt Lake and at Harvard, and I love her work. It's been a big part of my a theological journey. She, of course, uncovered um, and translated various Gnostic Christian texts. Mm-hmm. And here's what she has to say about recovering or what happened to um, the female God in Christianity. She says, unlike many of his contemporaries among the deities of the ancient Near East, the God of Israel shares his power with no female divinity. Indeed, the absence of feminine symbolism of God marks Judaism and Christianity and Islam in striking contrast to the world's other religious traditions, whether in Egypt, Babylonia, Greece, and Rome, or Africa, Polynesia, India, and North America. However, Jewish and Christian Gnostic works, which were attacked and condemned as heretical, abound in feminine symbolism that is applied in particular to God. Instead of a monistic and masculine God, these texts, the heretical texts, describe God as a dyadic being who consists of both masculine and feminine elements. And of course, her article goes on to talk about how Gnostic texts preserve the feminine in Christianity in ways that the Bible did not. Okay, so section three is titled Reconstructing Tradition. And this is the section that deals with the revisionist or the reformer approach within tradition. So Elizabeth Schusler-Ferenza has an article in this tradition. Rita Gross talking about female God language in Jewish contexts. Nellie Morton is talking about the dilemma of celebration. Judith Plaskow is talking about bringing her daughter to the covenant. Um, and, and other Jewish women are talking about women's Sabbath prayers um, and Seder celebrations. So this is the chapter really about the the reformers and the reconstructionists who are trying to save their tradition and excavate the feminine within it. So I want to quote from Nellie Morton's article um, on the dilemma of celebration. She says, women appear to be at an impasse in celebration. Traditional symbols root too deeply in a patriarchal culture to function adequately in their new context. And new symbols have not yet emerged. So we are not saying no to the whole created order of things, our traditions. We are saying no to those images, symbols, structures, and practices which cripple us and keep us from claiming our rightful personhood. We began by substituting feminine words of liturgy for those masculine words that exclude women. And our search led us beyond the sexist imagery to the wholeness embedded deep within. I really like that quote. Mm -hmm. 
Here's another one from Elizabeth Schusler Firenze. She says, my own experience as a woman in the Catholic tradition leads me to question that maleness is the essence of Christian faith and theology. Despite all masculine terminology of prayers, catechism, and liturgy, my commitment to Christian faith and love first led me to question the feminine cultural role, which the church had taught me to accept and to internalize. My vision of Christian responsibility and community brought me to reject the culturally imposed role of women in Christianity, not vice versa. Hmm. That's a good summary of her, her approaches. I'd like to also share a passage from an essay of hers because she, she really spoke to me too in this, you know, on this topic of reforming the church. She says, quote, a positive formulation of a feminist Christian spirituality and identity can never demand of women that they forget their own anger and hurt and overlook the violence done to their sisters. In Christian terms, no cheap grace is possible. At the beginning of the Christian life and discipleship stands metanoia, a new orientation in the life power of the Spirit. Christian theology and the Christian community will only be able to speak in an authentic way to the quest for feminist spirituality and for the religious identity of women when the whole church, as well as its individual members, has renounced all forms of sexist ideology and praxis, which are exhibited in our church structures, theologies, and liturgies. The church has publicly to confess that it has wronged women. As the Christian community has officially rejected national and racial exploitation and publicly repented of its tradition of anti-Semitic theology, so it is still called to abandon all forms of sexism. End quote. So, mm. I mean, I'm not holding my breath <laughs> that that will happen. <laughs> but boy, would it help a lot of people to heal, to have mm. it um, actually talked about and apologized and um, yeah, to have it talked about openly and, and have um, church leaders say that they're sad that it happened and renounce it publicly. I think that would go a long way to healing things for women. And, and so I appreciated her just being so bold in calling for that and saying that we can't really proceed to build um a really, you know, a, a fair, a just, and um, um, healthy space for women if women are still asked to forget our own anger and hurt and just, you know, move on without those steps of repentance happening. Mm -hmm. That definitely resonated with me. Yeah, it's extremely powerful. So, okay, the fourth and last category in the book is creating new traditions. So this relates to that approach that a lot of feminist theologians have to take of necessity with a, a whole new vision. So mysticism, vision, um, creating something completely new. This is the revolutionary feminist theology that 
places primary emphasis on women's experience. So I thought I'd read an excerpt from Naomi Goldenberg's piece on dreams and fantasies as a source of revelation, a feminist appropriation of Carl Jung. I'm a Jung fan and, um, and I love the role of dreams and visions in Mormon theology. And so I, I thought I'd pick this out. She says, Jungian theory might prove inspirational for feminist work in religion. If we devote energy to formulate spiritual concepts that allow us to maintain a religious view of life apart from the oppressive forms prescribed by traditional religionists. Jung describes how he was motivated to free himself from biblical creeds and how he developed a religious outlook that was utilizing visions fantasies, and dreams. I love that quote. And I had a couple of passages that I wanted to share from Weaving the Visions. One is a passage from Diani Uwahu, who is of the Etowah Band of the Eastern Cherokee Nation. And she writes the essay, Renewing the Sacred Hoop. And this is really neat because that will connect with next week's book, as well, which is called The Sacred Hoop by Paula Gunn Allen. But this woman says, quote, listen to the breath and know it is also the mountain's breath. Mother Mountain has many meridians of energy, just as the human body does. You can feel the mountains in your cheeks just by breathing. Your consciousness is not just in your body. It is in everything. Everything is related. The mountain, too, is your body so all the better to treat it with respect. As long as you are walking upon the earth, you are like a child in the womb, being fed by this earth. The wisdom of all our ancestors, wherever they come from, basically points to one truth. Everything is in relation to you. Native Americans say, all my relations, acknowledging that connection to everything that is alive. End quote. That really speaks to me. I'm a nature girl, and I, I always say my church is the mountains and, and trees. <laughs> and I do think that that's a powerful source of connection to the self, to the divine, to other beings, is just going out into nature. And then the other one that I wanted to share is so, like, I just love her tone, so I'll just let it speak for itself. But this one is from Louisa Tish who is an African-American priestess in the spiritual tradition of West Africa, um, specifically Nigeria. And um, her essay is called Ancestor Reverence in Weaving the Visions. Quote, ancestors function as guides, warriors, and healers. These roles are not mutually exclusive of each other. A given ancestor may act in any number or combination of these capacities. It depends on what the person was like during her lifetime and what work she was doing in the spirit world. Was your grandmother a seamstress? Yes? Then take her shopping with you. She'll lead you to the best bargain on attractive, durable, and low-cost clothing. <laughs> You'll have to acquaint her with your style and color preferences, but you should also pay attention to hers. Was Papa a handyman? Yes? Then take him with you when you go house hunting. He can sense the bad wiring, leaky pipes, and deteriorating foundation of the place. He'll steer you toward a better house and then suggest ways to make necessary repairs. You don't know how much they are willing to help you unless you contact them. End quote. And so those were just two examples that 
that were proposed as like in the under this, you know, this topic of create something that works for you. I mean, if you find yourself as a woman in a patriarchal tradition where you just feel on the outside looking in constantly as you see all of, you know, the rights and the, the you know, the saving ordinances only performed by men, do your own. <laughs> like do right. do your own special connecting things to the divine and um those were some that that stood out to me. So as we wrap up, Maxine, what would you say is a main takeaway for you? These categories, these four categories that this book pr- presents really describe my own my own path, my spiritual path. Um, because I went through the phase of inquiry and critique, and then I went through the phase of recovery, you know, and reform. And then I went through the phase of just totally rejecting it and bursting out of it and going off on my own path. And then I went through this whole phase of mysticism and vision and working there. And then I came back full circle and I actually came back to the LDS church in 2012, um, you know, about 20 years after I'd been excommunicated in order to synthesize them all. So what I've been doing since I came back to the LDS church as a feminist theologian is I'm actually using all four approaches. (laughs) I I find that I use all four of them and um, because for different aspects of my work because they're all really valuable and needed. And so I'm kind of synthesizing and integrating all of that now in my, in my own life as, uh, as a feminist and how I relate to religious community. And then in my work as a feminist theologian. Well, thank you, Maxine, so much for being here again. I learned so much from you and really, really enjoyed reading this book. Thanks for having me. It's just lovely to um, talk about these books with you. I enjoy it so much and I get a lot out of it too. 